All right. Good evening. Good to see everybody. Getting a little nervous there. About two minutes to seven, there was like three of us. But <laughs> praise God. Yes. All right. Uh, if you would turn with me in your Bibles to the Book of Revelation, chapter twelve. Unless a meteor hits the building, we should finish chapter twelve tonight. I make no promises, though. But um, we are continuing in Rome, uh, Revelation chapter 12 tonight. Now, if you've done any study on the book of Revelation, chapter 12 gives a lot of the commentators fits. Uh, they claim it's a difficult chapter to understand. I personally don't see it that way if, if we properly understand who the woman in this chapter is that the chapter opens up introducing us to. The reason, the reason commentators get messed up and find it difficult when it comes to interpreting Revelation 12 is because they wrongly interpret the woman to be Mary, the mother of Jesus, or the church, when in fact, as we have already demonstrated, this woman is representative of the nation of Israel. How do we know that? Well, I think it's pretty clear as we studied the dream that Joseph had in Genesis 37, and Jacob uh, interprets that dream and tells us that the, the, the sun, the stars, the moon, and all uh, represents the nation of Israel, basically. You can go back a couple weeks and get that CD, or you can go online and live. We don't do CDs anymore, do we? I'm dating myself. I didn't say cassette, so I... Or A-track, that's... Yeah. Get the 8-track, you know where I'm coming from, right? Uh, now, with that in mind, guys, let's read the first six verses once again, remembering now that we are currently in a parenthetical section in the book that runs from chapters 10 through 14, and which amplifies what has already taken place chronologically, but we're going back as a flashback to pick up some details that we've really already, uh, it's already happened, but we didn't know about it because in the previous chapters it wasn't laid out for us, but now we're kind of going back, catching our breath a little bit. Chapter 9, you need to stop, catch your breath, and then the Holy Spirit's taking us back now. Chapter 12 takes us back to the midpoint of the 70th week of Daniel, when the Antichrist sets up his image in the Holy of Holies. We've already crossed over that midpoint chronologically in chapter 9, and we'll pick up the chronology of the book in chapter 15. But uh, let's pick it up in verse 1 again, where John says, Now a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a garland of twelve stars. Then being with child, she cried out in labor and in pain to give birth. And another sign appeared in heaven, behold, a great fiery red dragon, having seven heads and ten horns and seven diadems or crowns on his heads. His tail drew a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was ready to give birth to devour her child as soon as it was born. She bore a male child who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron. And her child was caught up to God and his throne. Then the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God that they should feed her their 1,200 and 60 days. Now, last week we said there is a time gap of 2,000 years between the fifth and sixth verses of chapter 12. In other words, between the ascension of Christ back uh, to heaven after his resurrection and the fleeing of the Jews in Jerusalem into the wilderness after the Antichrist sets up his image in the Holy of Holies. I'll read to you once again what Jesus said in Matthew 24, verses 15. And 16, because he comments on this. He said, Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation, spoken of by Daniel the prophet, standing in the holy place, whoever reads, let him understand. So the Lord is admonishing us, look, you better know this. I'm telling you this, you're reading it. Daniel, go back to Daniel, you can read it for yourself. He's basically saying, I'm quoting it, but you better know what's going on. This is going to be very important to the Jewish people, all right? Then verse 16, let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Guys, when the Antichrist sets up his image in the Holy of Holies in the rebuilt temple in Jerusalem, 
It will mark the beginning of the last three and a half years of the 70th week of Daniel, a period Jesus called in Matthew 24, 21, the Great Tribulation. Remember, a biblical year is 360 days, so half of the 70th week of Daniel, three and a half years, would equal 1,260 days, exactly what verse 6 of Romans, uh, Romans, Revelation 12 tells us, all right? Now, as we said last time, guys, this will be a time of unparalleled hostility, persecution, and suffering that will break loose against the Jews perpetrated by the Antichrist and his followers, which is why Jesus told the Jews living at that time when they see the Antichrist set up his image in the Holy of Holies, Matthew 24, 15, they were not even to go back into their houses to get supplies or clothing, but they were to bolt down into the wilderness, run to the mountains for safety. And as we have already said, many scholars and commentators believe this place in the wilderness, in other words, the mountains where Jesus, the Jews in Jerusalem, should flee to immediately to escape you know, the murderous rage of the Antichrist. Many believe it's the rock city of Petra, uh, on the southeastern side of the Dead Sea. We've already covered this. You can go back a couple weeks, and we talked about Petra in detail. And so with all of this in mind, and remembering that the chronology is really the midpoint of the 70th week of Daniel. That's what we're talking about. With that in view now, let's we come to verse 7. And war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought with the dragon, with Satan, and the dragon and his angels fought, but they did not prevail, nor was a place found for them in heaven any longer. So the great dragon was cast out, that serpent of old called the devil and Satan, who deceived the whole world. He was cast to the earth, and his angels were cast out with him out of heaven. When I heard, Then I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, Now salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ have come for the accuser of our brethren who accused them before our God day and night has been cast down. Guys, Satan's work of accusing believers only ends here when he's cast out of heaven at the midpoint of the tribulation period and no longer has access to the throne of God. Right now, Satan and his angels have access to God's throne. In fact, they report to him. Not that he needs them to fill him in. He knows everything. But Job chapter 1, the angels of God appeared before the Lord, and so did Lucifer. And so, you know, you can read that and, and understand. But um, right now, the devil has access to God's throne, which means he accuses God's people day and night. Right now, as we said last time, because of that, we need an advocate and an intercessor. And fortunately, thankfully, we have both in the Lord Jesus Christ. We looked at, uh, at 1 John 2, verse 1, in Hebrews 7, 25. You can write the references down, look them over again. talks about how Jesus is our advocate. Uh, 1 John 2, 1 means a, attorney for the defense, the Greek word. He's also our intercessor. Every time we blow it and the devil tries to accuse us before God, the Lord Jesus steps forward and says, Father, that sin has already been taken care of. It's already been, it's already under my blood and it's been paid for. So the devil can't really go anywhere from there. Now, this kind of dovetails into verse 11, which for, from our standpoint is one of the most important verses in the book of Revelation. Even though it's not really talking about us because it's talking about the future uh, tribulation saints, but we can certainly glean some incredible things from this verse that will help us to defeat the enemy in our lives, all right? So verse, uh, chapter 12, verse 11, and they, tribulation saints, overcame him, the devil. Let me stop there. How these tribulation saints are going to overcome the devil, well, as I just said, is most instructive to us living on this side of the tribulation. Let me just say this, and I might step on some toes tonight. Bear with me. Hear me out, okay? Because sometimes we embrace things that are more Christian tradition than they are biblical truth. And sometimes, and we all fall prey to this, 
uh, sometimes we have to be corrected, myself included, where you've clung to something because you learned it when you were a young believer. And uh, you just took it as fact. But then the more you study God's word, all of a sudden, wait a minute. Uh, that's not how it is. And that's how we grow, right? How did they overcome or how will they overcome the devil? Well, let me just say this. They did not defeat him by means of Christian incantations like I bind you, Satan. I plead the blood. Or Christian mantras, Abba, Father, Abba, Father, Abba, Father. You know, that kind of thing. I've heard Christians repeat these things because they think that they're releasing power in some way. That's a mantra. That's a mantra. That comes out of the occult, okay? When you think that words have power, that's the whole idea behind positive confession, word of faith movement. Words have power. How do words have power? Because God spoke everything into existence in Genesis chapter 1, right? When God said, let there be light, there was light. When God said this, this happened, right? Well, if God has got power through the spoken word, we're his kids. Uh, we have power too. We have, when we speak, things are going to happen. We speak them into existence. Well, I don't know. Is it only lost on me? It wasn't the fact that the words had power. It was the one who spoke the words had the power. But people, so a lot of, you know, and then, of course, you, you find Christians who are, um, you know, rebuking the devil and binding the devil and, this is supposed to give them victory. There's a lot of false doctrine that has come into the church for dealing with and defeating the devil. That is very popular, but not very biblical. We have to go to the Word of God. What does the Word of God say? Now, I know where folks get these things from, and uh, yeah, I could show you where, you know, binding and loosing oh here it is right here jesus said you know whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven and they apply that to spiritual warfare but the context the context is evangelism you go back and study the passage and it was a rabbinic term it was a, a an idiom a jewish idiom the rabbis used to use that if whatever you bound on earth uh, you know, it was like you were, you were uh, rejecting. Uh, whatever you loosed on earth was their way of, say, receiving. And Jesus says, when you guys go into all the world now, you're going to take over from me, preaching the gospel. Listen, whatever you bind on earth, in other words, whoever you forbid from entering the kingdom is forbidden. Whoever you, whatever you loose on earth, whoever you receive into the kingdom is received based on whether or not they receive the gospel. That was the context. Going into all the world, preaching the good news. Those that accept the gospel, you are, I'm authorizing you to say you are accepted into the kingdom. Those who reject the gospel, Jesus, I'm authorizing my disciples to tell people you are rejected from the kingdom. Because the gospel is the key that opens the door of salvation. We've talked about that, right? But turn to James. Let's just... We could spend all night on this. I'm not going to. Don't get nervous. I've already upset enough of you right now. But I, I honestly just want to show you what the Bible says, and then, you know, whatever you feel in your heart is the right way to go, fine. I just, you know. James gives us one of the classic passages for dealing with the devil, spiritual warfare, right? James 4, verse 7. Therefore, submit to God. He's talking down to believers now, right? Therefore, submit to God. We studied James. We said that was James' way of saying, place yourself fully under God's authority and control. Therefore, submit to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Notice James doesn't say, rebuke the devil, and he will flee from you. He says, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. And I bring this up because many Christians have been taught to rebuke the devil and bind him in the name of Jesus. You hear Christians praying this, usually from more of a charismatic background. Again, Satan, I bind you in the name of Jesus, right? And uh, 
I mean, I know what they're saying. And again, I, I know where they get it from. And I just shared it with you. But it's an unbiblical concept uh, to think we can bind Satan with our words so he can't do his dirty work. Uh, you, you're not going to find that. And by the way, if we could bind Satan with our words, who keeps letting him loose? I mean, really? The whole church is binding the devil. How does he keep getting loose? Because he's hassling me all the time, right? Look, if that's your concept of fighting spiritual warfare, verbal formulas that you cast, throw out, and you're going to bind the devil, let me just say this to you. You're going to be very frustrated and defeated in your Christian experience. Now, of course, we can pray and should pray, of course, that God would protect us or deliver us from the devil's oppression and persecution. Nothing wrong with that. Also, we can pray that God would use us to spread the gospel and expand his kingdom on the earth through our various ministries he has called us to, which would take territory away from the devil and thereby lessen his influence in the world. That's all legitimate. But if you think you can bind Satan as if you're tying him up and making him powerless to carry out his evil deeds, that is not a biblical concept. Turn to... 2 Corinthians 12. And let's look at one of the classic passages on dealing with the devil right out of the mouth of Paul the Apostle. So 2 Corinthians 12, let's pick it up in verse 7. Paul said, And lest I should be exalted above measure, by the abundance of the revelations God gave to Paul, he wrote probably a good half in the New Testament. And so Paul was saying, you know, lest I be puffed up, you know, with pride, because God has given me so much of the Word of God that the church has built itself upon, uh, to humble me, keep me humble, he said, a thorn in the flesh was given to me. Now, we don't have to guess what it is. It's, uh, it's a, a literal messenger of Satan. Uh, God gave this thing to me to buffet me, lest I be exalted above measure. Concerning this thing, I pleaded with the Lord three times that it might depart from me. And he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Paul said, Therefore, most gladly, I will rather boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore I take pleasure in infirmities, in reproaches, in needs, in persecutions, in distresses for Christ's sake, for when I am weak, then I am strong. If this doctrine of binding Satan was valid, why didn't Paul use it right here? He knew this was the devil. He knew the devil was hassling him. I mean, if that doctor was true and what we need to do is verbally bind the devil when we're being attacked like Paul was obviously being attacked, why didn't Paul just say, devil, I rebuke you. I bind you, Satan. He prayed to God three times, Lord, please take it from me. Because who is Satan the servant of? The Lord God Almighty. God Almighty, God allows Satan to continue because he is serving God's purposes. He's giving people a choice. We have free will. If we don't have a choice to exercise our free will, it's not legitimate free will. If God's the only one we can choose, there's no such thing as free will then. So the Lord allows the devil to continue so that people have a choice. They don't even realize they're making a choice. Jesus, have you not... For me, you're what? Against me. There's no neutral. It's all, if you're not for Jesus Christ, you are actively living and serving the devil, although people don't realize it, okay? But why didn't Paul use that verbal formula, I bind you, Satan? Because Satan was hassling him, attacking him. It's because it wasn't, it's not biblical. It's not biblical. Because this is the perfect time to use it if it was a legitimate tool that God had given us for binding the devil. 
Besides, as I just said, Satan can't do anything unless God allows him to. Book of Job, right? Again, Satan is serving the purposes of God in our lives. Why does God let him continue? Well, he lets him continue in our lives, uh, primarily to teach us how to be good soldiers of Jesus Christ, how to persevere under pressure, uh, and to conform us more and more into the image of Christ through adversity. All are targeted at us by the devil, but he can only do what God allows. Uh, God has got him on a leash, you might say, and the Lord only lets him get to us so much and then pulls back the devil, who would kill us in a microsecond if he could, if he had the, the free will to do that, or I should say the, the uh, ability to go forward and do whatever he wants. No, he is serving God, and he can only go so far. God's in control, right? Um, as somebody said, the Lord allows the devil to turn up the heat, but all the while God's keeping his hand on the thermostat. He can only go so far, okay? Now, I know some people would say, well, then what you're saying is I shouldn't do anything when Satan attacks me. I should just accept it. No, I didn't say that either. I didn't say that either. Well, what am I supposed to do then? Do what James and Peter tell us to do. I'll read to you from what Peter said, 1 Peter 5, 8 through 10. Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. Verse 9. Same thing James said, resist him steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same sufferings are experienced by your brotherhood in the world. We are command, uh, commanded to resist the devil um, being steadfast in the faith, but we are never commanded to bind him. We resist him by putting on the whole armor of God every day and walking closely with the Lord, Ephesians chapter 6, verse 11, and then praying constantly that's Ephesians I'm sorry did I say Ephesians 6 verse 11 talks about us putting on the whole armor of God you can read about what that means and then in verse 18 Paul said and pray without ceasing so this is how we resist the devil okay and in the process we're growing uh, the whole way um, again resist the devil and he will flee from you one pastor put it this way said and I quote how many of you have have uh, excuse me? How many of you have ever had a hard a hard time getting to Bible study? Uh, I don't know, um, but somehow you got there. I commend you because had you succumbed to those pressures, you would have you would have faced them again and again. You see, because Satan isn't omniscient. Uh, because he can't read your mind or see into your heart, he's dependent solely upon trial and error to see what works. Therefore, if he sees that a headache will keep you from worship and Bible study, guess what will happen? You will have headaches perpetually. If he sees that your kids acting up causes you to pull back, stay home, and not be where you should be, well, he'll have, he'll have found the key to slowing down your walk. I am convinced that many people experience unnecessary hell in their homes or trials in their lives because they don't understand this verse. They don't realize that if they resist the devil, he will indeed flee, end quote. It's all, it's all warfare, all warfare. Now, guys, as far as the devil being bound, well, he is bound to a certain degree. Who bound him? The only one who could bind him the Lord Jesus Christ. But Jesus told us that, the New Testament teaches us that Jesus bound the devil at Calvary's cross, right? Didn't he say in Matthew chapter 12, he, he's, he's laying out the groundwork the, theologically for what he was about to do, go to the cross to bind the devil, okay? That re, which released the power of God within the church to go into all the world and take captives from the devil for the glory of God, right? So Jesus said in Matthew 12, 29, how can one enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Strong man, and then he will plunder his house. Now, he's talking about, Jesus is talking about going forward. Uh, his church taking over the work he had begun. But Jesus himself had to bind the enemy before the work could go forward and the kingdom of God be built through our ministries, right? Colossians 2.15 
He said, having disarmed principalities and powers, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it, in his cross. So Satan and his demons are defeated. All right? Now, they can still hassle us. And if we allow them, they can defeat us, depress us, discourage us, and so many other things, right? But it doesn't have to be that way. We are not working towards victory as Christians. We're working from it. Jesus gained the victory at Calvary's cross. There's no reason for a Christian to be defeated. Now, I'm not saying I've never been defeated. Don't, don't get me wrong. I'm just saying that's on us. That's on us. Because if, you, if we're in Christ, which we are, then everything Jesus was and did is ours. He defeated the devil. So if I walk closely with him and abiding in him, I'm going to walk in victory. As long as I understand how the devil works, how he tries to ambush, how he tries to use the, my thought life or my fallen nature against me, and if I'm not on guard and I can't, don't keep bringing these areas of weakness to the Lord for him to strengthen them, then I'm not susceptible to the devil's... Cause the devil is a very seasoned general. We get this from the book of Job. Remember when the, Satan presented himself before the Lord, right? And uh, the Lord asked him, well, where you been? Not that God didn't know. And so Lucifer said, well, I've been cruising around the earth, up and down, to and fro. God said, have you considered my servant Job? Not a more righteous man in the face of the earth. The Hebrew word for considered is a, uh, was a military term used of a general that scoped out a city looking for any areas of weakness that he could capitalize on when he finally attacked that city to defeat it. The devil has been studying us for a long time. He knows our weaknesses. And uh, sometimes we don't make it hard for him to know our weaknesses. And so whatever those weaknesses are, he's going to target those areas in your life to defeat you. Now, what you do is you bring those things before the Lord and, uh, you know, whatever it might be, maybe it's alcohol or drugs or pornography or something that the devil is really getting in there and, and, and bringing you down through. You keep bringing those to the Lord. You keep drawing close to Jesus. You stay in the word. You pray unceasingly. And you will notice that in time, these areas become less of an issue because Jesus Christ is strengthening you. This is all about, it's all about our relationship with him because we're in him and he's, he gained the victory. The only way we'll be defeated is if we let areas of the flesh go unchallenged by us, undealt with, um, but we don't bring them to the Lord for him to give us strength. Now, back in verse 11. These future tribulation saints, and John is seeing this as if it's already happened now. He's watched it unfold in real time. It says, they, and they overcame him. These tribulation saints overcame the devil by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony, and they did not love their lives to the death. Now, guys, the, these three things, I say this is one of the most important verses in the book of Revelation, because it teaches us who are not in the tribulation uh, how to defeat the devil. It's the same basic things, okay? First of all, they defeated the devil by the, by the blood of the Lamb. Well, that's where it all starts. All victory starts with the blood of the Lamb. It, it, that has two uh, ideas behind it, I think. First of all, the devil is the accuser of the brethren, and he accuses us every time we blow it so that we're filled with guilt and condemnation, and what does that do? It takes the wind out of our sails. It causes us to just lay down and give up, and, and he neutralizes us, many Christians that way. But the blood of the Lamb, Jesus said from the cross before he bowed his head and dismissed his spirit, he said what? It is finished, right? How many times have we talked about this? The Greek word is tetelestai, which could be translated paid in full. And if you go to Colossians 2, Paul picked up on that, because in those days... If somebody was convicted of a crime and they were sentenced to the dungeon, they would write their crime or crimes on a piece of parchment and they would nail it to the dungeon door. And when that person had paid his debt to society, don't we still talk about that? Right? After he had paid his debt to society, 
they would take that piece of parchment off his dungeon door. They would write Tetelestai on the bottom of it, paid in full, roll it up, give it to him. And that was his proof against double jeopardy that he had paid those crimes and no longer owed that debt to society. Paul tells us that all the crimes, all the handwritings of ordinances that were against us, every time we broke God's word, his law, in thought, word, or deed, was written in the ledger. And, and Jesus took that ledger and he nailed it to his cross and he paid the price. And he wrote on our account, our ledger, to Telestai, paid in full. So as I said last time, sure the devil can still accuse us, but he has no legal basis for it. He knows he's a toothless tiger. He still likes to make a lot of noise, talking about how bad we are and how much we've blown it. I just, I don't talk to the devil. I hope you don't either. I never talk to the devil. But I do say to myself, it's all taken care of. It's under the blood of my Savior. He's not going to be able to condemn us if our debt has been paid. So I overcome the devil by the blood of the Lamb, right? But also, if you think about it, when Jesus died on the cross, as we just mentioned a minute ago, uh, he, uh, he conquered over, uh, over sin, over death, right? Over the devil. And once we are saved, once we give our heart to him, we are placed in Christ. We are accepted by the Father in the Beloved One. It's not Phil Ballmeyer that's going to stand before God the Father someday, and God's going to say, oh, what a great guy you were. Boy, you really did a wonderful thing on the earth. You really were. He's going to see Jesus, because I'm in Christ. Now, on the earth, that supernatural life that i'm in christ you say well yeah but is that real you better believe it's real you better it's invisible doesn't mean it's not real i am in christ you are in christ how do we become in christ he died in the cross that we might be forgiven for our sins and once he died in the cross shed his blood we placed our faith in him we are put in christ the devil isn't really fighting us. He's fighting Jesus, if you think of it that way, okay? So we overcome the devil, and they will too, by the blood of the Lamb, okay? Also, though, by the word of their testimony. Um, the word of their testimony. When you testify of something, you are being a witness, okay? That's the idea. What are they going to be testifying of? Well, the gospel. How that Jesus Christ died, rose again, and uh, ascended back to the Father, is coming back someday to establish a kingdom. This is their testimony. Uh, it's the gospel. And the devil cannot overpower the gospel. The gospel is what defeats the devil because it's what Christ did in the cross. We're just sharing. We're just testifying. Uh, to what Jesus did, how that, you know, through giving his life on the cross, shedding his blood, um, we have forgiveness of sins. We are brand new creations. Now, you have to understand something. Right now in America, and, you know, I'm, I'm not getting down on the church. I mean, you know, there's a lot of great churches. But we, we have kind of entered into a country club Christianity period. I mean, the church has become a nice place to socialize and, uh, and uh, you know, uh, have a nice meal together. Many churches have, uh, have uh, you know, Starbucks and uh, food courts. And, you know, I'm not putting that down per se. I think it's a distraction, though. And it gives people the impression that, and what happens is the church becomes a subculture. We don't want to go out into the world. Why do I, you know, we have movies in the church. We have fellowship. I can go get a meal. I can have coffee. We can sit around and, 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 and talk about the Lord all day. Who wants to go into the world? And so it has turned the church into a subculture. Instead of in, into a force that we come to church, get fired up, get strengthened by the teaching of the word, encourage one another, then we get out there. And we bring the power of God to a lost world by sharing our testimony, the gospel, right? When the tribulation period comes, it's not going to be a happy time. It's not going to be a joyful time, a pleasant, easygoing time. These people are going to be hunted. They're going to be hurting. They're going to be persecuted, even martyred, many of them. 
And here they are, they're proclaiming Jesus Christ with joy. I don't know if you realize this, but in the first century, you know what brought a lot of those pagan Romans to Christ? It was how Christians went to their deaths. They, were, they went to their deaths singing songs of praise, praying for their enemies that God would forgive them. Guys, those pagan Romans, many of them had money and their lives were nothing, all about just indulging themselves, yet they were miserable. They didn't even have anything to live for, let alone die for. When they saw how Christians were dying, their testimony was so powerful, it brought thousands and thousands of people to Christ in those first decades and then on into the succeeding years. I think it's going to be the same way. This is not going to be a happy time even for the world. The Antichrist is going to be in power, and uh, he's going to give people, uh, you know, hope of becoming God someday. I, I believe that's the message he's going to preach. Uh, but the world is going to be miserable. The world's going to be miserable. And um, these people are not going to have anything to really live for. And yet they're seeing these Christians who are being persecuted. And um, yet they're joyful. They have a purpose. Um, they're forgiving their enemies. They're going to their death singing songs to God. I believe it's going to be the same way it was in the first century. And I believe that's one of the reasons their testimony is so powerful. It's easy to talk about God when your life is going great. But when your life is hurting, when you are really being, you know, things are just adversity and trials and suffering, and you can maintain the joy of the Lord, that's a powerful witness. That's a very powerful, and I think it's going to bring millions to Christ. And thirdly, they overcame the devil because they did not love their lives to the death. You know, Paul the Apostle said, you know, for me to live, to be with you guys, still serve the Lord, that's good. To die, that's even better, because then I'm with Jesus. So whether I'm alive on the earth, I, I get to serve the Lord. Whether I die, I'm with the Lord in heaven, right? Paul didn't care. You, you remember how that at one point, um, where was he? I think he was, I forgot. Uh, was it Ephesus or Lystra? It was Lystra. And, um, you know, Paul, wherever he went, he preached the gospel and a big brouhaha broke out, right? Because <laughs> he was talking against, you know, pagan deities and, and idols. And, you know, some people made their living by making idols, okay? So he upset a whole bunch of people. And, um, and what happened was they got a hold of him, beat him up pretty good, dragged him out of the uh, Colosseum or the amphitheater, uh, to die. They thought they had killed him. They dragged him out and left him there, right? Now, I believe at this point, Paul was taken up to the third heaven, to, to, to the heaven where God dwells. He said, I, I don't know if I was alive or dead, but I, I heard things so incredible, it'd be unlawful for me to share what I heard, right? Now, we get that later in Paul's writings, but as we read the story in the book of Acts, they Paul, pulled Paul out of the, the amphitheater. They thought they had killed him, right? to start with Paul wanted to go in and they were having a big uh, a rally in there they were all upset because of what Paul was teaching and, 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 and things. Paul said let me go in and talk to him no no you crazy but he went anyways right they beat the snot out of him thought they had killed him he's out there laying on the ground all of a sudden he revives brushes himself off and goes right back in how are you going to defeat a guy like that he doesn't care he doesn't care if he lives or dies. All he wants to do is serve God. And if it meant his life, so be it. But I'm not going to let an opportunity like this get away. I got a whole stadium full of people. I want to share the gospel with them. Look, you can't stop people like that. And I believe these tribulation saints are going to be given tremendous grace by God to face death. I'm not saying they're not going to have fear. They're just not. The definition of courage is not the absence of fear; it's the control of fear. You don't think these young servicemen and women out in the battlefield don't get afraid, but they don't let their fear control them. That's the key. 
That's what the Christian life has to be. We're fighting a war, right? And the devil's out to kill us. I mean, literally kill us in any way he can. But we have to love the Lord so much that whatever happens, whether I live or die, I belong to Christ. I just want my life to be used by him, right? Um, another translation where it says they did not love their lives to the death. Another translation makes it clear. It says, for they did not cling to life even in the face of death. All right, verse 12. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. Woe to the inhabitants of the earth and the sea, for the devil has come down to you having great wrath because he knows that he has a short time. Satan's power is real and terrifying, but not because he's triumphant, but because he knows he is beaten and he has only a short time left before he is bound forever. And so like a wounded, cornered animal, he will fight with great ferocity against the people of God during the tribulation period, trying to bring as many unbelievers. People of God, they're fighting for souls. The devil, he's fighting against them because he wants to bring as many people to hell with him. He knows that's where he's going. He knows he's going to be in hell someday, right? But he wants to bring as many unbelievers to hell with him as he can. Now, you might be thinking, well, why doesn't he just give up? He knows he's a, a defeated creature well, why why doesn't he just give up not a bad question one author offers a possible answer to that question he said and i quote don't forget that satan is utterly depraved and probably insane he may have deceived even himself into thinking that he has a chance to defeat god no matter how desperate their situation looks, no matter how furiously Satan rages against them, believers can take comfort in knowing, not just in the tribulation period, but right now. Believers can take comfort in knowing that his ultimate defeat is certain, end quote. It reminds us of the words of Martin Luther's magnificent hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. A couple of lines from that hymn go, the prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fell him. When the God who spoke the universe into existence speaks Satan's demise, he has no recourse. He's going down, and that's all there is to it. Verse 13. Now, when the dragon saw that he had been cast to the earth, he persecuted the woman who gave birth to the male child. Guys, the great tribulation, the great tribulation, begins at the midpoint of the last seven years and corresponds with the devil being thrown out of heaven. In the Old Testament, as we have said before, this period of time, since the Jewish people are the focus primarily, not exclusively, I mean, during the second half of the tribulation period, the great tribulation portion, um, the Antichrist's followers are going to attack any believer in Christ. But the focus is going to be Israel, the Jews, right? In fact, in Jeremiah 30, verse 7, this period of time is called the time of Jacob's trouble. Jacob was renamed Israel, right? So this is going to be a time of great persecution and uh, adversity for the Jewish people. And turn to Matthew 24. Let's read this one more time. As Jesus said, Matthew 24, starting with verse 15. Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet standing in the holy place, whoever reads, let him understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let him who is on the housetop not go down to take anything out of his house. And let him who is in the field not go back to get his clothes. But woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babies in those days. And pray that your flight may not be in winter or on the Sabbath. Who is the focus here? The Jews, right? In Jerusalem. You know, I've been to Jerusalem numerous times. On the Sabbath, you can't get a bus, a cab, an airplane, doesn't affect Gentiles. People want to read the church into this. 
this isn't about the church. The church is in heaven by this time. This is talking about the Jews who are going to be alive during the tribulation period. And now the midpoint comes. The Antichrist sets up his image in the Holy of Holies and basically declares himself to be God, but declares war on the Jewish people. And this is what Jesus is saying. You better pray that this doesn't happen on a Sabbath. Because now you're going to have limited transportation to get to the mountains. Verse 20, And pray that your flight be not in winter or on the Sabbath, for then there will be great tribulation, such as has not been since the beginning of the world until this time, no, nor ever shall be. Knowing that his time is short and uh, having no more access to heaven, the adversary, the devil, now directs all of his anger earthward as he has cast down to the earth. And he begins with Israel, the woman, and creates a wave of anti-Semitism. Satan has always hated the Jews because they are God's chosen people, but also the instrument through which salvation came into the world through the person of Jesus Christ, the Messiah. I mean, Satan would love to destroy the nation of Israel, particularly as the time draws near for the Messiah to return to earth to establish his promised kingdom. A Jewish remnant, though, must be ready. This is something that I find interesting. Um, Jewish scholar Ar Arnold Frankenbaum uh, talks about this, how that Jesus Christ is coming back, okay? But, and I think he talks about this in Hosea, but also there's other places in the Old Testament where it talks about how God is preparing his people for the return of Messiah. But I think in Hosea, at one point, they have to, uh, they have to pray that he would come back, right? Uh, because he's gone now. They basically, uh, you know, rejected him, obviously. And um, he said, you know, you're, you've rejected me, but blessed, uh, you know, but, and you will see me no more until you say, blessed is he who comes. In the name of the Lord. Remember that was Matthew uh, verse, uh, chapter 23 at the end there? Frankenbaum believes, and there's others that believe that what's going to happen is Israel has always, Jewish people have always been incredibly resourceful and, oh man, they're fighters. They're fighters. Now, God has given them grace to defeat their enemies. But like we Americans that were established as a country, by God's grace and strength, we took on the strongest nation on the face of the earth and won. Are you kidding me? That was God. You can read stories from the Revolutionary War of the miracles that happened almost every day that brought us to victory, right? Same thing with Israel. God gave them victory over their enemies. God was with them. And the idea is that, you know, that they began to feel puffed. They, didn't they forgot that. Though at one point, they started to feel like it was them. They were so strong. They were so resourceful. Nobody could stand against the Jewish people because we're that tough. And it's going to come to a point at the, during the tribulation period where they're going to be, their backs are going to be so against the wall. It's going to look like the nation is about to be completely eradicated, exterminated. And at this point of utter desperation, doesn't the Lord often allow us to get to a place of utter desperation? where we cry out in total desperation. I can't do it, Lord. If you don't do it, it's not going to happen. And we cry out to God on our knees, begging the Lord to intervene. And God never turns his ears away from a broken and contrite heart. And when the Jewish people get on their faces and say, God, we can't do this. We, we, we need you to help us, to give us that's when Messiah, when they petition Messiah to come back, they will see him as the one they have pierced. You can read Zechariah 12. Uh, the one they have pierced. And they're going to say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. As they welcome their Messiah to the earth who destroys their enemies and establishes the kingdom. But in the meantime, the Lord is going to prepare a special place for them. We've talked about Petra. I believe it is Petra, a special place that God has prepared for them. 
where they're going to be protected and cared for until Jesus does return. Now, Revelation 12, verse 14, but the woman was given two wings of a great eagle. So she's now departing. She's running. The woman, Israel, was given two wings like uh, of a great eagle to run down to the mountains to seek refuge from the Antichrist, okay? Um, there are those who believe this reference to, you know, the two wings of a great eagle. They believe might be a reference to America since the eagle is our national symbol. And I've heard some Christians raise the question, could it be that the United States will airlift the Jewish people out of Israel down to Petra? Now, when I first heard that 40 years ago, what did I know? You know oh, wow, maybe, who knows, right? But after seeing how our government couldn't even airlift our own people out of Afghanistan, I now think that that possibility is laughable, especially with this current president and his administration, which, by the way, is not pro-Israel or pro-Palestinian. Am I wrong that I just read before service started that Joe Biden's going to take our embassy away from Jerusalem and bring it back? This, this man is trying his best to destroy America. You bless the Jewish people, Genesis 12, verse 3, I will bless those who bless you and curse those who curse you. We are itching for a bruiser. And our leaders are leading us right down that path. Now, I, I don't... Israel's existence never depended on any other country, including and especially America. I do believe that somehow the Lord will take his people to the place that he has prepared for them in the wilderness. Although we can't be certain of the identity of the two wings of an eagle, this much we do know, guys. Listen, God has used this terminology before. One author and pastor made this observation. Let me quote it to you. He said, this is figurative language that symbolically depicts Israel's escape from Satan's assault. The striking imagery of the two wings of a great eagle is taken from Exodus 19, verse 4, which reads, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on, eagle, on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. The pastor says, God will bring Israel to safety just as he delivered the nation from the bondage of Egypt, end quote. Well, how's he going to do it? Don't worry about how he's, he's going to do it, Right? I mean, you know, Moses, you know, God promised enough meat, you know, uh, to, to feed the, the whole nation until it was coming out of their nostrils. So well, how are you going to do that, Lord? We're in the wilderness. You know, we're in the desert. God basically said, Mo, don't worry about it. I'm God. I can handle it. You know? We never have to, you read the word, you go, well, Lord, how are you going to do this? You don't have to worry about that. Okay, if he says he's going to do it, he'll do it. You remember the story how the next morning the quail came flying through the camp of Israel, three foot high, just perfect for batting practice, and they <laughs> clubbed quail all day long and piled them up and then dried them in the sun, made quail jerky, and they were eating this meat, you know, and you can read the story, okay? But if God says it, he'll, he'll take care of it, Okay. Verse 14, but the woman was given two wings of a great eagle that she might fly into the wilderness to her place. See, to her place. God has got a specific place he has prepared for her where she is nourished for a time and times and half a time. Again, this period of time is the most, is the most documented in all the Bible. 1260 days, three and a half years, 42 months, a time, times, and half a time. Time, year, times, two years, half a time, a half a year. Uh, and that's what's being said right here. Uh, the serpent, where she's nourished for a time, times, and a half a time from the presence of the serpent. Of course, the serpent, as we've already seen, is the devil, who is controlling not only the leader of the one world government, whom we call the Antichrist, he's controlling the whole government. We're going to see in chapter 13, a beast rises out of the sea. We're going to see that that is a description not only of the Antichrist, yes it is, but of his kingdom. The devil is going to be not just controlling this man, he's going to be controlling the whole 
kingdom, the last world empire, okay? Um, but um, the Antichrist being, you know, controlled by the devil will be hunting down Jews living in Jerusalem during the second half of the tribulation period, in other words, the 70th week of Daniel. We read these two scriptures a couple weeks ago, but let me just quickly read uh, again Daniel 11, verse 41, talking about the Antichrist. He shall also enter the glorious land, that's Israel, and many countries shall be overthrown, but these shall escape from his hand, Edom, Moab, and the prominent people of Ammon. This is the area where of modern Jordan, right, on the eastern side of the Dead Sea, it, which is where uh, Petra is located. This seems to be the one area that the devil, God does not allow the devil or his antichrist to, to, take, to conquer and take control of because he's prepared this place for the Jews to take refuge. Okay, And we know Isaiah 16, verse 4, Let my outcast dwell with you, O Moab. These would be the Jewish people that have fled from Jerusalem. Um, possible reference to the city of Petra. Be a shelter to them from the face of the spoiler, the Antichrist. For the executioner is at hand. Devastation ceases. The oppressors are consumed out of the land. Look, the survival of the Jewish people throughout history is a testimony, first of all, to the existence of God, and secondly, to the validity of his word, because he promised to preserve Israel. Okay? He promised to preserve Israel. You know, Queen Victoria said to her prime minister years ago, who himself was a strong, devout Christian, and who had been witnessing to her about the Bible being the word of God. And at one point she said to him, show me one thing that proves the Bible is absolutely true. His response was interesting, right on the money. He said, the Jew, madam, the Jew. The Jews should never have survived. They have been hated by pretty much every nation on the face of the earth except America, and that might change. They are a country the size of New Jersey when they were placed back into the land. A country of, what, 15 million people surrounded by 80 million Muslims. They should never have survived. The fact that they still exist is a testimony that God is real, and he protected his covenant people as he promised he would do in his word. Verse 15, so the serpent spewed water out of his mouth like a flood. After the woman, she's fleeing down to the mountains. And he spews water out of his mouth like a flood that he might cause her to be carried away by the flood. This could be a literal flood of water. It's true. Or it could be the flood of an army. An army likened to a flood. Let me read these to you. We're running out of time. I want to finish. Uh, Jeremiah 46, verse 8. Egypt rises up like a flood, the armies of Egypt, and its waters move like the rivers. He says, I will go up and cover the earth. I will destroy the city and its inhabitants. So God is likening the Egyptian army to a flood. Jeremiah 47, verse 2, thus says the Lord, behold, waters rise out of the north. It shall be an overflowing flood. Um, waters, this is uh, uh, armies, and they shall overthrow the land. See, they, it's a personal pronoun. These are people, an army. They shall overflow the land and all that is in it, the city and those who dwell within. Then the men shall cry, and all the inhabitants of the land shall wail. So, guys, the flood mentioned in verse 15 could simply be a reference to the total effort of the devil to destroy the nation of Israel. Satan, you know, striving with all of his power at his disposal, disposal to persecute and exterminate the Jewish people. Verse 16, But the earth helped the woman, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed up the flood which the dragon had spewed out of his mouth. This might be a reference to a literal earthquake. There are several earthquakes that are talked about in the book of Revelation. Chapter 6, verse 12. Chapter 8, verse 5. Chapter 11, verses 13 and 19. Uh, chapter 16, verse 18. Uh, these are literal earthquakes. And it could be that God times this when the devil spews out this water, whether it's literal water 
or some kind of earthly army or demonic army. That the earth opens up and swallows whatever this flood is, uh, protecting his people. All right? It marks the, any way you interpret it, it marks the destruction of the attacking army and the end of Satan's second assault. Verse 17, And the dragon was enraged with the woman, and he went to make war with the rest of her offspring, who keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus. This is probably referring to the 144,000 Jewish believers that the devil now goes and makes war with, and no doubt uh, other Jewish and Gentile Christians who are living in this during this last three and a half years, you can read in Revelation 7, verses 9 to 14. I was going to read it with you, but uh, we don't have time. Read it again, how that uh, the devil now really turns his attack, yes, on the Jewish Christians primarily, but anybody who's been converted to Christ, Gentiles too. And he, he persecutes them so um, viciously that John sees... All of these souls in heaven who have been martyred on the earth, uh, a number so large he can't even number it. That's going to be the extent of the persecution the devil is going to level against uh, the remaining Jewish converts to Christ and even Gentile converts. Now, we're done. That brings us to Revelation 13, which we will begin next time. I, I hope, I hope. Uh, you have found the first 12 chapters in our study of Revelation interesting and informative. It's my hope. But understand that starting next week with chapter 13 and progressing through chapter 18, we will be looking at prophecies that date back to the first century A.D. and even beyond that. Prophecies we got out of Daniel and Isaiah. But we're going to be looking at prophecies that date at least back to the first century A.D. that are so relevant to what is going on today in the world that it will absolutely blow your mind. I mean, as we study prophecies given 2,000 years ago and compare them with what we are seeing unfolding before our very eyes in the, in the nightly news and so on, before our very eyes in the world around us, it will absolutely amaze you. I have been doing research. Now, I went back today and read my study from chapter 13 that I gave in our Revelation study in 08. And I went over. And it's amazing how all of that information, pr pretty much, um, I thought this is what it's, you know, this is what Revelation is talking about. This, this, and that. Some of it still applies. But as I've been doing my research, and if we believe, as I think most of us, if I think all of us here believe, that Jesus Christ is coming back very soon, then we should see uh, the groundwork being laid for the final scenario, uh, the tribulation period, the coming of the Antichrist, right? Which will ultimately lead to the return of Jesus Christ. But as I've been looking at my old notes and comparing them with what has been happening today and how our insights have gotten much better into what God is actually saying, you're going to be blown away. I'm, I've been blown away. And I've been reading and cutting and pasting dozens of articles, reading books, watching videos trying to piece together for you guys just some of the salient points of what's coming. And, and as we look at our world today, how it all fits, it's going to be mind-blowing. Um, the signs are all there. The end times prophecies are being uh, fulfilled at a breathtaking pace. My point is to get you a little hook, <laughs> just to tell you don't want to miss these next studies. Um, come on back. Um, you're going to be amazed at what has been going on, and it hasn't just started recently. We go back and look, wait a minute. The devil, the, the, the iniquity, the mystery of iniquity is already at work. Didn't Paul say that? The devil has been planning the one world government, people, the Antichrist coming, 
people being conditioned over centuries of time to buy into his message, which we'll talk about that. I mean, we're living in incredible times. And hopefully the Lord will give us enough time to finish chapter 13, especially we'll see. Uh, if he doesn't, we'll have a balcony, balcony seat. It won't matter. So, all right, guys, let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, of course, Lord, and all that you've placed here for our learning, many prophecies that tell us what's coming, even if uh, things in the tribulation period don't affect the church because we'll be in heaven with you. It's good to know these things. It's good to pass these things along to others. Uh, so that even if they don't receive Christ before the rapture, they will have a working knowledge of what's coming. And hopefully they will fall on their faces immediately after the rapture to receive you and become tribulation saints who understand what your word says about the days and weeks and months that will unfold before their eyes before you return to establish your kingdom. So Lord, give us grace as we continue on in our study in Revelation. You give us grace, Lord, to, um, to, to read, to understand, and to apply these things properly. We ask all this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Amen.